Welcome to the smartest doctor in the room with your host, Dr. Dean Mitchell, interviewing the leading doctors in the country to get insights into the best medical treatments available today. Not everyone has access to the best specialists, but you can advocate for yourself and learn the right questions to ask your doctor and the best possible treatment options. Remember, what you know can make a difference in your healthcare. Welcome to The Smartest Doctor in the Room. I'm your host, Dr. Dean Mitchell. This podcast has been on the air two and a half years with the focus on getting expert advice from top medical doctors and researchers around the country. Today, for the first time, I'm reaching out to someone who is not a physician, but who has developed a following as a leading advocate for patients suffering with thyroid disease. Her name is Mary Shulman. And she has published many popular books on thyroid disease and weight loss, including The Thyroid Diet and The Thyroid Diet Revolution, which is the book I have right here. (laughs) I went over. I tell my patients all the time that in pursuit of medical knowledge, especially holistic and natural healing, that I will travel anywhere and I will listen to anyone that I believe has good ideas that make sense and that have scientific merit. And to quote again my idol, which I've done on several podcasts, Dr. Bernie Siegel, who's the author of many books, including his bestseller, Love, Medicine, and Miracles, he has this wonderful line. He said, quote, in traveling to the foreign land of illness, just remember the doctor is the tourist, but the patient is the true native of the land. And I see Mary, you know, nodding in agreement. As doctors, what I always tell my patients, I mean, you can look up so many things about illnesses on the internet and learn a lot of information, which I think is great. And that helps the discussion with your doctor. But as a doctor, I do see hundreds and sometimes thousands of patients coming through with different illnesses. And so I share my experience, what I think is going to work best. But I do always tell a patient, if you can find a friend, a colleague, someone who has that same medical condition, they live with that every day and they can hopefully give you a lot of insight and help. So with that introduction, I would love to welcome the native of the thyroid disease land, Mary Shulman, to the podcast. Thank you so much for that introduction. And uh, like you, I am a great fan of Dr. Siegel's and I, I think I'm going to paraphrase it, but he always said something that I thought was fantastic, which was the patients that survive and thrive are the ones who are a real pain in the neck for the medical right. establishment. That's right. That's right. I love when he say that. He goes, he goes be, a, be a pain, you know, be a, you know. well, you know, so funny. My father used to always say the squeaky wheel gets the grease. And exactly. I like to say the squeaky wheel makes a lot of noise. But in this case, I do agree with Dr. Siegel. I think you have to be your own advocate to get the best care. Absolutely. I agree. So, Mary, I'd like to start off the podcast, which, and again, when I was reading your book, The Diet, The Thyroid Diet Revolution, where you talk about your own personal story. And I think the listeners will enjoy this because it, it involves a wedding dress. So maybe could you share again how you ended up finding out that you had a thyroid problem? Oh, the famous wedding dress. Yes. And it, it's what a, color was it? It was white, I assume, It right? was white, yes. It was a <laughs> traditional wedding dress. And okay. I was in my very early 30s and I had gotten engaged and was so excited about the wedding and found a great dress and 
ended up going for the first fitting and, you know, they, they fit your dress, they take the measurements, they do everything. They, so they start the process. Then you go back a couple times before the actual wedding to get right. fit again. Fittings. Every time I went for a fitting, they had to increase the dress size by another size. Now, most brides are super worried. They want to look great. They're they're losing weight. They're working (laughs) out. And oftentimes the dress has to be tightened up a little and brought in, you know, because they've lost a little bit or tightened up and slimmed up. In my case, the dress kept getting bigger and bigger. And I was at the same time, I'm supposed to be excited. I'm getting married. I wasn't a bridezilla. I wasn't freaking out. I was happy, but I'm stressed out, exhausted, and feeling depressed. And so I went to my doctor and I said, something's going on. I'm gaining weight. And I had never been somebody that was gaining weight that easily. I was tired. My hair was getting strange. My skin was different. Everything seemed a bit off. And that was the beginning of my journey into thyroid land. As so wait, wait, so he didn't think you were bridezilla? No, no. He, he took you seriously. No, yeah. My That's doctor, good. actually, it was a, a, a woman. And she mm. said to me, um, yeah, this, there's something going on. The first time she said, well, let's, let's watch. And then, we'll t- and then about the second visit, I think about two months in up to this process, she said, I'm just going to run a thyroid test to see what's going on. And at this point, I don't even really know what a thyroid is. Uh, So I'm completely new to the topic. So she ran the thyroid test. And like so many patients, I got a phone call left on my voicemail. Oh, the doc found you had a thyroid problem. She called in a prescription, go get it filled or pick it up at the pharmacy. And I'm thinking everything's going to be back to normal. A couple of weeks, I'll be fine. It's like taking an aspirin or taking an antibiotic for an infection, 10 days, two weeks, I'll be normal again. Things will be great. Mm. So when she actually diagnosed you with the, I assume, an underactive thyroid, did she explain to you at that time certain things about your blood test shows, let's say an elevated TSH? Were you in the normal range? No, she just said, go get some thyroid medicine. Yeah. I mean, at that point, it, I mean, this is in the, in the early 90s mm-hmm. and I, my TSH was significantly elevated. So there wasn't Was it out of the range? I'm just curious. We're yeah. going to get into this. It was out of the five, yes. six range. So my it was pretty TSH high. was about 16 or 17 oh, wow. when I was diagnosed. Oh, wow. So it was very high. So that was, so, yeah, that was a- So it was obvious ball. hypothyroidism. So she right. said, yeah, you're hypothyroid and go ahead and get the prescription filled. And it wasn't until about three or four months later when I went in for a follow-up and said, this isn't helping. Something's Mm. not working. I'm still feeling tired. I'm still gaining weight. I'm still feeling low and blue and brain foggy. And then she said, well, let's start thinking about what the numbers are and how to kind of delve into it. And then that's when I started to realize I'm going to have to do my own research. I'm going to have to just learn. Just out of curiosity, did, they, did she start you on Synthroid, like the basic? Yeah, I think it was yeah. just uh, Levoxyl, uh, just a levothyroxine. Yeah. Exactly, okay. exactly. And was your numbers not coming down or something? Or were your numbers coming down, but you just clinically weren't feeling better? I'm just always curious when I see patients because sure. sometimes your numbers could could improve, but you don't feel better. And I, we'll talk about, I've seen cases like that. Right. In other cases, People's numbers don't improve. So that's another issue. She got me into the reference range. So I was probably about midpoint of the reference range, which most doctors would like consider normal. Or like, like a that. two. Yeah. Think about like, a two and a half or so. Three. Okay. And she said, well, we've gotten you into the range, but I still wasn't having any symptom relief. So the numbers were responding mm. to the medication, right. 
but the symptoms were not. That, that's a really important point I want the listeners to, to understand because again, I'm sure so many of them when they're first told that they have a thyroid disease, that again, it seems just so straightforward. It's almost like blood pressure or something else. Like, hey, you just take some medicine and it'll be all fine. But there are a lot of nuances. I always like to tell my patients, everybody is an experiment of one. What works for exactly. one person might not work for the next person. So you were still on your journey. This, the journey had not ended. Oh, I was just starting the journey. You're just beginning. Point. Yes. Yes. Okay. yes. okay. We're going to probably get into more of your journey as I'm going to go through some questions. So you said something interesting and made me actually kind of smile when I was reading your book that back in the day, thyroid, it was sort of like a dirty medical word. And what I mean by that is like on TV or in comedy, they would joke about women who were portrayed as having, oh, I have a glandular problem, right. <laughs> you know, or a thyroid problem, because again, they were trying to scoot around the word that goes, there's an issue of obesity. And I'm, I'm sure a lot of doctors had women that came into them and said, I can't lose weight. I'm doing everything I can, even if they are still eating the wrong foods. And the doctor saying, okay. Could be a glandular problem, and I and I bet also there were for a while a lot of quote weight loss doctors that were prescribing a lot of thyroid medication to patients just to try to get them to lose weight. So I think that's where that all became associated with. But why why did you bring that up? But why did you feel that thyroid was a, a dirty medical word? Well, because it is it's the butt of jokes, and as you mentioned, it's it's now become sort of the politically correct code that's used in advertising and comedy television shows and movies for describing someone as fat. They right. can't really say, oh my God, she's fat on a commercial. I've seen so many ads, everybody from Marriott Hotels to Dairy Queen to the Seinfeld show, all these different television programs and advertisers have made allusions to thyroid when they're really trying to make a fat joke. Right. And I think part of the problem that you're talking about too is that we had this this era in the sort of the Valley of the Dolls period of the 60s when there were some unscrupulous diet doctors who were handing out amphetamines and thyroid sort of hand in hand right. together for weight loss. Right. And but it was a very small number of doctors. Right. Most right. doctors are not looking at thyroid medicine not. as a weight loss treatment. Right. Right. But I think it got a bad rap in the broader medical world that people were looking for thyroid medication as a diet cure. And that's a myth that's pervaded the entire thyroid world still now, 40, 50 years later. Right. But it's also gotten a dirty word, I think, because thyroid is a condition that affects women primarily. It affects mostly women in their perimenopausal and menopausal years, for the most part, 40 plus. And it's associated with things like hair loss and weight gain and fatigue and depression. Right. Who wants to walk around with a big book while they're on the subway or uh, out at the beach that says, my thyroid? Right. It feels embarrassing to a lot of women. So celebrities don't admit it as readily. There are celebrities who would rather tell you they have cancer than they have hypothyroidism. Interesting. Wow. Interesting. I know you mentioned that. You just brought up also a lot of the symptoms that I, I think the listeners should be on the lookout because they are very common symptoms. I mean, I, again, in my practice, and I just interviewed Dr. Jacob Teitelbaum about chronic fatigue syndrome, and I see yeah. a lot of that as in my practice. But of course, a lot of these symptoms are seen in multiple 
illnesses, not just thyroid disease or thyroid could be the cause. So as you mentioned, hair loss, which again, really freaks out women, men as well. Sure. (laughs) Fatigue, weakness. I think the other things that are a little more subtle, which sometimes doctors didn't always want to hear about were poor concentration. Like they'll say, "I, I just can't do the numbers and the math and the computations that I normally do. Constipation, which again, I'm always amazed how many patients, but especially women, who live with constipation for years, not realizing the medical issues with that, with that whole exactly. microbiome discussion. Exactly. It's like, oh, it's just normal. I have to go to the counter and I have to use laxatives all the time. And, and I think the other thing are skin rashes. There are certain skin rashes that are mm-hmm. sometimes be associated with thyroid and other related autoimmune diseases. So what did you do? What was your next step as far as diet or what, what did you do to help yourself? Well, uh, my next step was to become educated. And I sort of adopted a motto that I still have today and one that I I really try to encourage other patients to take on, which is that I am the CEO of this particular operation. I like that. And (laughs) I need to bring in the best people for for my particular organization. So my doctor was very open-minded and willing to learn, but she hadn't been dealing with that much hypothyroidism and Hashimoto's, et cetera. So she was willing to learn along with me. I dived in. I went online in the earliest days of the internet and started connecting with other thyroid patients right. to hear their stories. See, people forget it because I know I got involved in the internet in 1995. Right. It really was, gosh, it was in its infancy. I mean, that's oh, the best way of putting it. And Absolutely. Uh, today I know anybody, even my mom, God bless her, she'll go and she'll Google any kind of aches or pains that she has. And she, she gives me a whole list of things, you know, and becomes an immediate authority. But back in 1995, that wasn't so easy. Oh, and no. There was, there was no Facebook groups. So, you know. Exactly. I remember right. dialing into the National Library right. of Medicine <laughs> and looking at DOS listings of, of articles, trying to right. find things that I right. wanted to read. So it was quite an adventure. But I was able to connect with other patients and find out that I was not the only one who wasn't feeling well on. How did did you connect with other patients then? Again, was there? Uh, Well, in those days, we had the Usenet support groups, which were these online uh, forums that were very, very rudimentary, but you could post something and people could comment back to you. So it was an early, early chat room type of an approach. Wow. And we also, in the, that was the early days of AOL. So AOL had some chat rooms as well devoted to thyroid. And I was able to start connecting with patients connecting with practitioners, and then eventually started one of the first websites dedicated to thyroid disease back in 1995. Well, the reason I'm asking this too, because it's what's so yeah. interesting what I see in my practice, I do see a lot of thyroid cases. My wife and I, Dr. Ricky Mitchell, we do holistic medicine in New York, along with conventional medicine. And it's very interesting because I think also it depends, and that's why I was interested, you as such a leader in, among patients, that depends who they see. If a, a patient sees sometimes, and not to really be critical, but sees an endocrinologist, they could have some of the symptoms you were describing. They could have a TSH of four or five and say, you know what? You're okay. This is not the problem. Whereas if they see a functional medicine doctor like myself, like Dr. Kent Holthorff out in California or Dr. Right. Teitelbaum exactly. in Hawaii, then they're saying, you know what? This should be treated. So that's why I was curious. And again, you were such an early proponent of being an advocate for yourself and for yeah. thyroid patients. Well, what would you tell a, uh, a friend now if they called up and said, Mary, I, I'm not feeling so great. I have fatigue. I have constipation. You know, she's sharing you intimate stuff. 
And uh, I know I read your books and I got my thyroid test. My doctor just did a TSH. He didn't do the other ones, free T3, reverse T3, all that stuff that we look at. And it's like four or five. What would you tell that friend to, to do? Well, I would start by saying you're not a you're not a lab value. You're a person. Right. Number one. Number two. The reference range is for reference purposes. It's not a an arbiter of everyone's treatment and how you feel. Right. And I would urge her to probably jump out of her current relationship with the doctor that she's seeing and find someone who's more knowledgeable about managing more subtle hypothyroidism and who recognizes that there's an optimal range, not just the normal reference yeah, range. Yeah, you know, you know what I love? You bring up a great point. You know, Jacob Teilbaum, when he gives some of his lectures, he's very charismatic. He's, he used to like to always say, when you go to a shoe store, he goes, the sizes for men could be from eight to 12. Right. He says, that is the range. But he goes, if you are size eight, you don't want to be walking around in size 12 shoes. So I really learned a lot from him too, that when you're talking about a range of lab values, which obviously there's a usefulness to it, but they change. And depending on what your range is that fits in with your symptoms, that's how you have to be treated, you know, by your doctor. Exactly. Well, and then of course there was also a lot of hoopla a few years back because most of the integrative and functional medicine doctors like you, like Dr. Holtorf, like Dr. Teitelbaum, know that levels at four and five and six on a TSH are usually evidence that someone already has something percolating, right. that right. their thyroid's already not working properly. And even the clinical laboratory guidelines people were looking at that issue and That's looking right. to tighten up that reference range and cut it off much lower. And for about a year, we had those new guidelines where they said, look, anything above three is hypothyroid. And then sort of mysteriously, all of a sudden it went out the window and went back to the much broader range. It has to be politics. And I'll tell you why though also, because I noticed even with cholesterol, every year or two, they keep on lowering the reference range for the bad cholesterol, like LDL and everything. Right. And I said, my God, they're going to have 10% of the people left because who has a LDL of 80? You know, it really, Mm -hmm. those are the outliers. And I think that with thyroid, I think they were like a little worried that there would be this avalanche of patients getting thyroid medication who they put, maybe they were worried what shouldn't get it. But what I like to use, I'm just curious about your opinion. Yeah. And a typical thing that I would look at very carefully, obviously is the clinical symptoms. I mean, the patient's history is so critical and that's really what you want a good health right. professional for. I mean, if they did have what I consider elevated TSH over two and a half or three and if they had what we call the thyroid antibodies, like thyroid peroxidase antibodies, which right. is consistent with Hashimoto's. And I'm not saying every patient has to be treated, but when all of those things start to add up, why wait till they end up in failure or that they have such severe symptoms that I think there's enough literature and experience that these patients should be treated earlier? Would you agree? I, I agree 100%, yeah. especially because we see there is research that says that even if someone has normal TSH, free T4, free T3 levels, showing that the circulating thyroid hormone levels are at this point normal, if they have elevated antibodies, they can prevent progression That's to right. overt hypothyroidism with very low level of treatment. They can resolve symptoms with low level treatment. And it's especially important, as you and I know, for women in reproductive age who are trying to get pregnant, maintain a pregnancy, prevent early miscarriages, to have very good control over their thyroid, especially if they have antibodies, because it becomes even more important during that 
fertility, preconception, fertility, and pregnancy period, that that thyroid level is very carefully controlled and maintained. So I am all in favor of having an open mind and looking at the complete picture, the family history, the personal history. Yes, that's symptoms. also important too, right? It's not unusual to have a pretty strong family history, especially on the maternal side. Oh yeah. Mom, um, grandma, sisters, daughters, right. they all come in and have the same issues. Yeah. Uh, let's move on to something which is related. It's related to your books about with diet. Yeah. There are dozens of diets out there that promote weight loss. There's paleo, there's Atkins, which has been around a long time. There's keto, which I'm not the biggest fan of, but it does help people lose weight. What is your essential diet plan? I mean, I read your book, but I'd like to hear from you for a patient that suffers with thyroid disease or especially an underactive thyroid. What's, what's your sort of your basis? Because, you know, people get so confused. It's yeah. very threatening to patients. You know, when we do a lot of nutritional work in my practice because mm-hmm. we deal a lot with candida and yeast patients. And a lot of that avoids having them have wheat and gluten and sugar, you know, things that they, not the greatest things for people in general anyway, right. but it is restrictive and it's frightening to patients. So what, what do you feel? Let's say again, looking back, you know, you're talking to your younger Mary Showman self right. saying, this is how I should be eating if I know I have a thyroid problem. Well, I think it's, this is like everything with thyroid. It's a, it's not a one size fits all. Okay. Because there never is for thyroid. You can't, there are, there's no one set of rules that are going to work for everyone from the weight standpoint. But I think the bottom line and foundation of all of it is number one, we have to be getting optimal thyroid treatment. If the thyroid levels are all over the place, if we're really deficient in T3, the active thyroid hormone at the cellular level, then we can be doing everything right on the right. diet and exercise front. And what we're- we're going to be, you know, walk, uh, good, pushing good the point. rock up the hill. Right. Good point. Diet can so, only do so much, right? Mm-hmm. Exactly. So diet, all we need to do with thyroid is level the playing field. I also run into the opposite problem where people think, oh, the minute I get my thyroid optimized, the weight's going to fly off and I'm going to be a size four again. Right. And I'm like, no, all it's going to do is make your diet and exercise work instead of be completely pointless. Right. Because I've talked with people that were marathon runners and eating as clean yes. and as calorie controlled diet as possible. And they were gaining weight because their hypothyroidism right. wasn't being treated. But once they got their thyroid treated, it wasn't as if the weight flew off, but all that exercise and healthy eating started Start to, to work. work. Yeah, that's a good point. So that's something I always try to make sure people understand. It's not a magic diet pill and it's never going to be. But when women, and especially women or men too, are struggling with their thyroid uh, and are not able to lose weight and they've gotten their thyroid fundamentally optimized, the other thing I, I always want them to look at are the other hormones because as we know, the hormones really work in tandem. Absolutely. That's right. It's super important. So I want to look at the adrenals. I want right. to look at the blood sugar and insulin, right. the body's ability to handle that. And mm-hmm. I also want to talk about the sex hormones especially in women over 40, because that uh, estrogen, progesterone shifts, testosterone shifts in men. And then when we're talking blood sugar issues, thyroid, you throw it all together and then stress that we're living with, chronic physical and emotional stress and poor nutrition. And we've got all the hormones in flux. So we want to look at those hormones and get them. That's a great point because, you know, what I learned in medical school was, you know, the first thing you learn about definition, what is a hormone? And essentially it's a chemical in our body that's secreted from one gland that goes to work in other areas of the body, necessarily other glands, so it's interacting. But I do want to return to diet though for a second. I mean, there's always a lot of, uh, I don't know, whether there's misconceptions or concerns. 
excess of, of eating soy can make a thyroid, a hypothyroid right. worse. The cruciferous vegetables like cauliflower, broccoli, which are good, te- te- you know, typically good foods to eat. And obviously, of course, the big factor, and I've had a podcast about this, and I'm having another one in a few weeks with a super top person from Harvard, gluten. gluten. I mean, right. you know, because again, we worry about the autoimmune and, you know, the whole sure. leaky gut issue causing these, quote, autoimmune diseases. Mm-hmm. So I was just curious because I was, again, reading through your book, I wasn't sure I was, I mean, you were mentioning things, but do you have people cut back on these things? Do you feel that's important? Absolutely. I mean, I think yeah. the most important thing for people for weight loss with thyroid and really probably in general for most just healthy diet in general is cutting back on simple carbohydrates and sugar. Right. So we're looking at all of the different sources of sugars and the simple carbohydrates and simple carbohydrates almost by by definition starts to eliminate a lot of the processed grains, the pasta, the cereal, the cookies, the breads right. that are low fiber. All the stuff we love. Exactly, exactly. I mean, I'm from New York, you know, give me a all slice right. of pizza and some pasta, you know. Uh, but at the same time with thyroid, we also have to look at some of the other issues as you mentioned, things like the goitrogenic or cruciferous vegetables, which a lot of people, they get a bad rap, but they actually are only a problem if we are eating them in very large quantities raw. So uh, that's, that's we, a great point. Thank you for bringing that out. Yeah. I, I went, you know, it's so funny because I had a, uh, a colleague of mine who's actually a medical student. And one day I was looking at her, we were like studying and I saw her hands and her hands were bright orange. And I said, whoa, you know, this is before I had all my medical knowledge. Mm -hmm. And she was getting tremendous amount of beta carotene in her skin. She was eating tons of raw carrots and tomatoes, which are all high in carotenoids. So I think, I mean, because I guess, again, broccoli and cauliflower, they're good foods. I mean, they have so many anti-cancer properties, whatever too, but I guess, yeah, the raw is an issue. And what about the soy? You know, there are some people for a long time who, when milk was considered bad for people, and they went to soy milk, and they drank a lot of that. Do you think there's an issue there? I mean, about it, the phytoestrogen effect type of thing? Or I do. I do. Okay. Um, but I don't think that we need to be fanatical about okay. soy unless somebody has an allergy to it. But what I don't agree with with soy is using it as a primary protein replacement. If you look at the way the Asians eat soy, they eat it as a condiment. A a little bit of tofu, a little bit of soy sauce. Like in a soup or something, right? Exactly. It is not soy burgers, soy protein powders, soy shakes, soy milk. They're not getting it in large concentrated amounts. Right. That's Anything that we take in excess can start to have effects we don't want. That's a great point. The moderation really is such a key. Well, and so with soy, because soy has the ability to interfere with the body's ability to absorb thyroid hormone... We have to be careful about that. So I know a lot of folks that are trying to lose weight, they've got a thyroid problem and they go on these soy-based protein shake well, diets. They, go, they become vegetarian. Some of them are vegetarian and they, they're hungry and they're looking to- Exactly. You know, get- and they're doing soy burgers and soy shakes and high concentrated forms of soy and they end right. up gaining weight and their thyroid goes through the roof with hypothyroidism and they're trying to figure out what's going wrong. And the problem is that they're actually sabotaging themselves by slowing their thyroid down further with the soy. Yeah. So healthy amounts of soy, the way Asians eat it is fine in my book. Okay. That's, that's really good advice. Let's also talk about, because it's related to supplements, 
And I learned stuff from your book, which I really got me focused. I check a lot of like mineral and vitamins levels on patients before mm -hmm. I'm starting therapy. And, you know, one of the things that I commonly see, especially in young women who are menstruating is low iron stores, which is reflected as low ferritin, ferritin levels. Right. I've talked about this on a prior podcast with Dr. Michael Auerbach, a hematologist from Maryland, because again, these things can give women symptoms that they really suffer from. Not only can they be very tired because they can become anemic, but they could be tired just from having low ferritin levels and not actually being anemic and especially hair loss, which a lot of them get really upset right. about. And then I, I really, again, it reminded me from reading your book, how it affects the thyroid. Mm -hmm. Women have very low thyroids, like under 40 or even under 20, they could take thyroid medication, but it's not really working properly. Right. Ferritin is, is really important. It's kind of a, I always think of it sort of as like the uh, motor oil in the car. It's, yeah, it the, needs to yeah, be like there for the hormone, the whole hormone right. process to be working more smoothly. And, but one of the first and most common markers is that hair issue. Yes. And we see it in men too, but yeah, even I more do. so in women. Yeah. And so I always urge women when they're dealing with hair, either hair shedding or hair loss or hair changes in the hair structure, get your doctor to check your ferritin levels. Right. And a lot of people will say, you know, once I started supplementing with iron properly, it actually, I mean, it helped my hair, but it actually, my thyroid got much more regulated and I felt more energetic. Right. So it's one of those supplements. It's so simple to resolve and test for. So it's, I always say, why not at least take a look at it yeah, and make sure right. that it's well, short up? Again, this is a perfect example. The deceptive thing is that when a doctor gets a report on ferritin, they don't even typically, you know, let's say your ferritin can, I mean, unless it's like less than 20, they right. don't comment on it. Right. It's not considered out of range. Remember, we're talking about range, but yes. Right. But a woman that's got maybe a ferritin of 25 or 30 or 16, I've seen that, they don't flag it. And and nobody says anything about it because they look exactly. at the show, right. So that's that's really important for any listeners to you know, especially young women, to be aware of. Another one is selenium. Selenium we know is good. In a certain specific dose is good for the thyroid. I believe about two hundred micrograms. I always tell patients who have thyroid issues to have like one Brazil nut. I like the way they taste, and uh, or to take it as a supplement. Sure. Uh, we can do that. One to two Brazil nuts, depending on their size, is going right. to deliver a safe dose of selenium daily but not always a consistent dose because Brazil nuts do vary in size. Right. A lot of the guidelines suggest 200 to 400 micrograms max of selenium yes. from right. all sources. So right. I always tell people like, you got to look at your multivitamin, your That's prenatal, your thyroid supplement, all right. the different places that might have selenium in them because we don't want to go over 400 micrograms a day because then it can have some toxicity. Right, uh, great but point. Mm -hmm. at the right dose, selenium it helps with conversion of T4 to T3. Right. It helps with lowering thyroid antibodies and autoimmunity in the mm -hmm. thyroid gland in general. Right. And there's some evidence that it helps with other autoimmune reactions and may help with inflammation mm -hmm. uh, in some other parts of the body. So selenium is a super important mineral, but we need to make sure we don't overdo it. This is not one where more is better. We need exactly. just the Great right point. amount. Great point. Yes, that's so important. I think that's what people really have to, and that's why they have to work with somebody who knows what they're doing. What about also, you mentioned about iodorol. And this was interesting to me because iodine, which again is quite often overlooked as important in managing patients with thyroid disease. And even the testing is a little bit suspect. Um, I think you mentioned your book about a urinary clearance test. Because mm -hmm. typically, I typically order a lab test and now mm -hmm. it got me rethinking it. Is that supposed to be a little bit better? The uh, 
when you check it in the urine? Yeah, the urinary clearance test has you taking a, a loading dose of iodine the night before, and then you're capturing all of your urine for a certain period, 12 hours, 24 hour period. And they're looking at how much of that iodine is being absorbed by the body and how much is being excreted in the urine to get a fairly good picture of your iodine, whether your iodine replete, do you have enough iodine in your right. system? Because that's very rare not to have. I mean, I think it was in the Midwest, they used to not, not have that enough in the water or something. I mean, because it's pretty uncommon. I mean, I know you're in Maryland, I'm in New York. You don't really, people well, they, shouldn't really be having iodine deficiencies unless they're really also trying to really avoid salt, which well, salt what, gets what, in a lot of things. What we're seeing, interestingly, yeah, the goiter belt area, the area in the Midwest that was never covered by ocean right. is the area with the lowest iodine content in the soil. So that's the area with the highest incidence of iodine deficiency. Mm-hmm. The coastal areas that were once covered by ocean tend to have more iodine in the soil. So we get it more in our vegetables and fruits, but mm-hmm. people are avoiding iodized salt. Our foods and minerals are being grown in soil that's less and less nutrient-based. Right. Right. And so we're actually starting to see, I saw some studies recently, about 25% of women of childbearing age in their reproductive years are actually showing evidence of iodine deficiency during conception period, pregnancy, and postpartum. And that is a point when the mother's iodine status is absolutely crucial, not only for a healthy pregnancy, but for a healthy baby. Mm. So it's coming back. We're avoiding iodized salt. We're avoiding processed foods, which are all good things, but we need to then make sure we're not giving ourselves a borderline deficiency in iodine at the same time. What about also MCT oil? I mean, that got a lot of press the last few years. The, oh, uh, yeah, the uh, I'm bulletproof. Bulletproof. The bulletproof, bulletproof. Yes. How can I forget that name, right? Yes. The bulletproof, put that bulletproof little coffee, yeah. coffee, put it in this. Right. And then, you know, I, I actually discussed this with some other people on the podcast in the past, because I know like also Dr. Mike Royzen, who I respect a lot at the Cleveland Clinic, not a big fan of the coconut oils and all that stuff too. But some people are. What's what's your take on? I I think with the coconut oils, the MCTs, the monolauric acid uh, supplements as well kind of fit into that same family in some ways. This is one of those where it's not a smoking gun fix for everything. I've heard some sort of truly out there holistic folks claim, oh, you can just go off your thyroid medicine and, and take coconut oil and that'll cure your thyroid. Right. Not so, not going to yeah. happen. At the same time, I've also heard other doctors say, oh, coconut oil is dangerous for you. And that's not the case either. Yeah. Um, the problem I think a lot of people had, and I've, I've seen it with thyroid patients that I've coached with as well, is somebody told them, take a couple tablespoons of coconut oil every day. It'll help your thyroid. But they didn't do it in replacement of other fats. So they ended up adding multiple servings of fat on their diet without taking out other fat and replacing it with coconut oil, which can be a healthy fat. Right. But so they ended up gaining weight and they were like, what's going on here? (laughs) So I always say to people, look, you've got to look at how it all fits together in the picture. So do I, I sometimes cook with coconut oil. I also cook with olive oil, Mm, but I'm not going to be taking tablespoons of coconut oil as a supplement thinking that that's going to do something for me, but it's a healthy option and it works. It works as a part of a healthy diet for a lot of thyroid patients. Mm, Good point. I want to move on to essentially the thyroid epidemic. I was talking, I I did a podcast about two weeks ago with Dr. Ann Maitland. We were talking about the allergy epidemic, which was real and it's really increased, but there's definitely a thyroid epidemic. And I guess there's been a lot of concern about 
the environmental exposures. I was just curious on your take from talking to so many people in the community. Is this an issue? I mean, things like the BPA in plastic bottles, the radiation that we maybe get from cell phones and these towers. Do you get the sense that this is one of the main reasons why we're seeing a lot more thyroid disease or is it just being picked up more because we have better ways of detecting it through blood and ultrasounds and everything? I think it's a combination of things and I would separate out uh, items like radiation and I mean, straight radiation, like the kind that was released from Chernobyl or Fukushima is a known risk for your thyroid. It can cause thyroid cancer and all sorts of damage to the thyroid gland. So that, that we know also radiation treatment to the neck for people that have had like Hodgkin's disease or something that is a thyroid risk. That's different than some of these chemicals in the environment that we're talking about, which are environmental estrogens. They're endocrine disruptors. They are Mm -hmm. operating as hormones or interfering with our hormones to have negative effects. So everything from perchlorate in uh, the water supply, fluoride can be an access an environmental hormone disruptor. The PFOAs, the BPAs in our plastics, yeah. all of these chemicals are having a negative effect on thyroid function and may be contributing to increasing rates of hypothyroidism or autoimmunity and the radiation issue. And that's a part, I don't know whether I would tie cell phones and 5Gs and things like that into thyroid. I, I think that's, okay. that's a stretch. Okay, I was just showing the community if you're hearing that because it's, it's not, interesting. Yeah. Because you know, sometimes, again, and that's why I'm reaching out to you. I mean, obviously, I could speak to some doctors, you know, about right. thyroid thing. But again, being an advocate, a coach, you, you, you're probably, you know, again, you're the native of the land. You're hearing what's going on out there. And, I, and yeah. sometimes, you know, in medicine, that's when it comes to our doctor's attention, when people say, we're hearing this, we're seeing in these areas where people, whatever, have to rely on these things or they live in a certain area where we're seeing a lot more thyroid disease that just doesn't make sense. Like when you brought up a great point, like the Midwest, I forgot, you know, again, because there's no oceans or anything there Mm -hmm. that you don't get the iodine from the sea. And that's Mm -hmm. why people used to develop the goiters, you know, they look like a big bulging neck. Mm -hmm. So so again, so you don't think the cell phones are are a really big deal and people have to, I mean, because, you know, it's, it's amazing really how much we're exposed to that type of radiation now? Honestly, I have no idea whether they have an effect on the thyroid, mm. but I will tell you, I don't sleep with mine. Yeah, I, I would not. I charge it in another spot. Yeah. Exactly. Because no, I, think I, smart. I don't know what- um, It's the, electromagnetic radiation. I mean, yes. whatever, there's something there and that exactly. we didn't have before, so- Exactly. So I'm careful about it, but I don't. I think that we're, the jury's still out as to whether yeah. it has an impact on thyroid. Mm-hmm. All right, let's get toward the last thing we just talked about, thyroid medication. And I find this very interesting. And it's obviously a controversial debate still between the functional medicine community and endocrinologists. I mean, the endocrinologists, they don't want to hear about any other preparations besides Synthroid and maybe Cytomil. And the functional medicine doctors are all very busy with the different armor thyroid, WP thyroid, Nature mm-hmm. thyroid, you know, which right. have its combination of T4 and T3. And I have to give credit. I learned a lot from Kent Holtorf's work in his work with Hashimoto's patients about using the, the uh, I guess, glandular products. But what's your feeling? Because I'll, I'll just tell you quickly too. I, it's interesting. I had a case once where a patient came to me. She was uh, had been diagnosed with hypothyroidism, you know, and be treated for 10 years with Synthroid. And she came to me, again, how a lot of patients would come to me. Uh, she suffered with chronic fatigue. She's had this constipation. She goes, I've been on medicine. I go to a good endocrinologist. Well, you know, he's got great credentials, whatever she was, but I feel terrible. 
So I said, well, and I saw that she had the Hashimoto's antivirus. I said, well, why don't we try a different preparation just to see how you do? Mm-hmm. And, we, and I looked at the equivalent change and we switched her to, I think it was Nature Thoroid at the time. And like within two, three weeks, she was, she goes, I feel 95% better. Mm-hmm. And so that really opened my eyes. So I was just curious your thoughts about patients choosing, because there's, there's obviously a lot of different options now. I mean, the, right. probably even then when you first were treated, there was probably maybe only one option, or maybe there was still the armor because that was always floating around. Yeah. But uh, but now there's Tyrosint and, you know, WP thyroid. So what do, you, what do you think about the different preparations? Any Anything you're hearing out there in the community that seems to be overlooked that should be used more? Oh, well, uh, yeah. I mean, the bottom line, I mean, a lot of people come to me and they say, Mary, you can tell me right. uh, what's the what's the best, best. thyroid. What's the best? What's one, the best right? one? What do you take? What's the best one? And right. I, 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 the answer I would give, whether you're my brother, my friend, my neighbor, or somebody I'm talking to on the internet, is the best thyroid medicine for you is the one that safely works best for you. Okay. End of discussion. But the problem for so many thyroid patients is their doctors aren't even telling them that there are options. So options right, right. And so part of it is we have to know that there is a series of different options. There's levothyroxine, which is a synthetic form of one thyroid hormone. That's the Synthroid, the Levoxyl tablet forms. There is tyrosine and tyrosine sol, which is the liquid levothyroxine that is so much better absorbed by people with any kind of ulcers, absorption issues, celiac disease, gluten problems, any kind of stomach issues. They're going to do so much better with either the capsules or the liquid levothyroxine. Then we have the um, Cytomel, the T3 synthetic, which is so important to add in for those patients who can't convert T4 to T3, who don't make enough T3, who don't have a thyroid to be able to process T4 to T3 conversion, who are dragging around with high reverse T3 levels and exhausted. So some of those patients do beautifully on a T4, T3 synthetic combination. And then for some reason, we have a large subgroup of patients who simply feel better and do better with the natural desiccated thyroid, which is the porcine thyroid, the thyroid that is made from the dried glands of pigs. That's our armor, nature thyroid, WP, NP thyroid. These are the the drugs that are in that category. And they have been around for over 120 years being Mm. used safely. They've gotten a bum rap from the endocrinologist world. Right, right. A lot of politics. But they're very effective for a subset of patients. Yeah. You know, it's interesting because Kent Holter, I believe in one of the lectures I saw he he gave, really felt also a lot of patients with Hashimoto's or the autoimmune, he felt a lot of them have trouble converting T4 to T3. Yes. And so he's he'll use that first line in those kind of patients. So I, I found that interesting. Exactly. Yeah. Well, and, and there's even, there's a really interesting doctor, um, Dr. Uh, Antonio Bianco, who's a very well-known endocrinologist, but he's been out there really breaking some serious ground in the study of the genetic issues related mm. to T4, T3 conversion. And what he's found is 15% plus of the population has polymorphisms, which are genetic mutations that make it really hard or impossible for us to convert T4 into T3. Mm. And the example that I always give to people when I'm trying to explain it is T4 is like a box of dry cake mix. 
I'm not going to eat that box of dry cake mix. <laughs> I got to turn it into the cake before I eat it. Nice, nice T- analogy. Yeah, T3 <laughs> is the cake. It is. And if I can't turn my cake mix into cake, what good is it? And so Dr. Bianco is looking at this and saying, look, we have a subset of the population who can't turn T4, the inactive ingredient, into T3, the active hormone that, that does the job. So those people need T3 by nature. They need right. it. Yeah, that's a great point. I know some doctors give also a compounded T3 directly. I'm always a little concerned with that because it is, it's almost like going directly to the tissue and uh, they have to be a little careful with cardiac symptoms and things of that nature. As long as they're carefully watched. Well, the, actually the compounded T3 is interesting because Cytomel or leothyronine, the, the generic yeah. of the T3, it's very fast acting. It hits its peak in the yeah, bloodstream like two right. to four hours. Yeah. But the compounding pharmacies, if you go to a good one that knows what they're doing, can right. do a sustained release T3 okay. that delivers a much steadier and even dose over a longer period of the day, which means a lot of people that don't do well with a T3 yes. medication actually feel great with that because they don't get the peaks and the valleys. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, I always yeah. found the side of milk to be. I, I, if I do want to use... Uh, if I'm not using one of the products that have a combined T4, T3, if I go to a compounding, I will usually uh, look for a, a sustained release because it's right. kind of pain in the neck to do something three times a day. Exactly. Yeah. Well, we've covered a lot of ground. As I said, I got even more knowledgeable on these topics of thyroid. And I, as I said, I enjoy helping thyroid patients. I think it's such an important thing. Any last points or comments you'd like to make, Mary, before we do a summary? Well, I- I, I think I just always, I always want to sort of reinforce to people that you have a right to feel well, you have a right to live well, and you have a right to know all of your options and all of your alternatives out there. There are a lot of different ways to view hypothyroidism diagnosis. There are a lot of treatment options. And simply because your doctor says there's nothing else I can do for you is not a reason to give up and think that you're never going to be able to feel well. You need to look outside the box a bit, talk to doctors like you, like the docs we're talking about, Dr. Teitelbaum, Dr. Holtorf. There are right. doctors all around the country that right. are embracing a new view and a new way of looking at the thyroid and hormone balance. And so I, I want people to take control of their health situation and be CEO of their own organization. I love that. I love that business analogy. That is great. You had a lot of good analogies with the bit. You went from baking to CEO. To, <laughs> you covered it all. So I'm just going to give a little bit of a summary, even though I think it was pretty super clear cut, but thyroid disease is very prevalent and it's frequently underdiagnosed. So make sure that you have a doctor that's experienced and it's going to work with you in treating your thyroid disease. Dietary choices can be important in helping you to lose weight with thyroid disease. So listen to some of the things that Mary and I discussed. Proper mineral and vitamin supplements are also important in helping your thyroid medication work for you. Learn about what your TSH level is, the same way everybody knows what their cholesterol level is. And maybe also even know what your free T3, your free T4, and even in some cases, reverse T3 levels Because the more you become knowledgeable, you can have a better discussion with your doctors instead of just being on the receiving end of the information. And as Mary mentioned and I mentioned, again, not to be antagonistic with doctors, but but question your doctor if you aren't feeling better on your current regimen of thyroid medication. You might do better with a glandular product versus the synthetic synthroid or levothyroxine that you're taking. So there are options out there. Mm -hmm. And uh, with all of this, you can hopefully get the best possible 
outcome. Thank you again, Mary Shaman. I'm giving you an honorary doctorate degree for today because thank you, thank you very much. Work and please stay tuned for our next podcast coming up. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to the smartest doctor in the room with host Dr. Dean Mitchell. You can continue this conversation on Instagram at Dean Mitchell MD, Facebook at Mitchell Medical Group, or at DeanMitchellMD.com.